just like that, we're back. Another episode of Late Kick Extra, ready for your listening pleasure. I am Josh Pate. You guys have done a phenomenal job, to say the least, filling the inbox this week. We got everything from train hopping and tornado chasing stories to what if Texas became an independent? If we kick someone out of a conference, who should we put in there? We got a million different questions. Well, that would be a record, not quite a million, but we are jam-packed as usual. And a quick thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for all the five-star reviews. We're approaching 400 now. I think we've got 379 right now as I record at 2 a.m. Wednesday morning. Really fun. It's so quiet around here. But thank you so much for that. Keep those five-star reviews coming. The important people notice the more five-star reviews we get, and that includes people in the podcasting world who are responsible for promoting our shows to a bigger audience. So thank you so much for that. You help us out more than you could ever imagine. You know the ways to get in touch with us. Twitter, at LateKickJosh. Email, joshpate706 at gmail.com. You can comment under episodes of Late Kick Live that we do every Thursday and Sunday night on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. And now, with all the boring call-to-action stuff out of the way, let's dive in. It is this week's edition of Late Kick Extra. Gabe leads us off with a question that pretty much everyone wanted to know, and that is, what are my thoughts on the Big Ten schedule release? And this is happening, well, Wednesday morning, so right before we send this off to edit. The first thing that stands out to me is the format. You know, they're going to start, after all of the concern about, is Rutgers going to cause the season to be canceled? They're going to start on Labor Day weekend, the 3rd through the 5th in September. So they're starting largely at what would be considered on time. You've got two scheduled bye weeks, including every team having a bye week, either the second or the third to last week of the season, which means you have this kind of reservoir that you could spill over unplayed games into. You also, since you play the conference championship game on December 5th, scheduled at least on December 5th, you give yourself this two-week window between when you want to play your conference title game and when you really need to play your conference title game. Remember, the SEC is not playing theirs until December 19th. And thirdly, building themselves in as much wiggle room as possible, they're also playing a cross-division opponent for everyone the last weekend of the regular season, which means theoretically you could dump that if you needed to, to make up a game, or if you just can't play that game and you would have your division standing still intact. Wisconsin, to me, the big winner here, big congratulations to Paul Christ. Not only do they miss Penn State and they miss Ohio State, they get Michigan the week after Michigan plays Ohio State. They also get Minnesota at home early in the year, and they have a bye before they play Iowa. You couldn't have shaken it out any better if you yourself made the conference schedule. Maryland, woof, woof, woof. How about this six-game stretch to end the year? They play Wisconsin. They play at Penn State. They play Ohio State at Michigan, Minnesota. They play all of those games in the final six games of the season. Also, Talia Tonga-Vailoa, is he going to be eligible at quarterback? Is he going to get his transfer waiver approved? Who knows there? Also, the placement of some of these games is important to note. Ohio State plays Penn State, and that is the second leg of a back-to-back road game stretch for Ohio State. Now, how big are crowds going to be this year? Will we have crowds at all? Is playing back-to-back games on the road nearly as stressful and taxing as it normally is? I'm asking a lot of questions that I myself don't have the answers to. Also, Michigan plays Ohio State, and they're at Ohio State the week after they're on the road. So a back-to-back road stretch there that caps with a trip to Columbus, Ohio for Michigan. And again, the Big Ten Championship game December 5th. 
Those are just some of the takeaways. We're going to talk about that a lot more on Thursday night's Late Kick Live, so you want to tune into that. Let's get right into it. Jeff, I've never felt buzz in college football recruiting where social media and message boards, YouTube, they all seem to be on a similar page about a program's direction until now with Miami. It seems like all the signs are pointing towards them being able to shake up college football. What is happening down there? This is it, Jeff. We talked about this on Late Kick Live Sunday night. This is the subculture. It's the undercurrent. It's the pulse. That is college football. In the NFL and pro sports, it's pretty much all on the radar. It's pretty much all reported. All the practices are open to the public. They have to make all the injuries public knowledge. And so there's not a whole lot of behind-the-scenes information you get relative to the huge sums of behind-the-scenes information you could have at the college level. That subculture, that undercurrent, that pulse, when something's brewing, you feel it there first. The general college football public kind of laughs it off. Now, some people genuinely just don't believe it, and then some other people are laughing as kind of a defense mechanism, hoping the buzz isn't founded in legitimacy, really, because they may be your rival fans. So with Miami right now, there is buzz. Oh, it's been there for about a month, two months, and in some cases, it's been there since Manny Diaz got hired, but right now, they are really heating up in recruiting. And it's not that they've landed all the kids they want yet. They are either trending for or have landed some of those kids. And what's happening is they seem to be in the process of properly harnessing kind of a vision-based recruiting strategy. They don't have on-field product to sell yet. They're not coming off a, you know, a, a 10 and 2 campaign where they went to the conference championship game and nearly missed a playoff spot. That's not what Miami was last year in year one under Diaz. But what they're able to do right now is they're able to package up this vision and they're selling kids, namely kids in South Florida, on what Miami could be if they stayed home. And James Williams bought into it. We all thought he was going to Georgia and all of a sudden he's a five-star athlete from down there in South Florida. He commits to Miami, shuts his recruitment down. Now you got all eyes on Jason Taylor, five-star defensive back from South Florida. Leonard Taylor commits later this week, I think uh, Thursday or Friday. So depending on when you're listening, he may already have committed. And Leonard Taylor's a five-star defensive tackle. These guys are all from the same area down there, same school in some cases. And so if they land those kinds of guys, even coming off a down performance, a subpar record, what it does is it makes everyone understandably say, wait a second, if they're landing these guys, even having been pretty porous on the field last year, well, number one, it doesn't look like they'll be porous much longer. And number two, what will their recruiting be like if they are humming on the field? Now, the defense mechanism is, oh, don't worry. You know, they'll all decommit. Miami will barely make a bowl game if they do this year. I've seen a lot of people say that this week. Because we, again, we talked about this on Late Kick Live Thursday. You wouldn't wager on that statement, first off. Most people just don't believe that. You say it because it makes you feel better. You don't believe all these kids are going to decommit from Miami if they do end up committing there. You don't really believe that. You would never wager your actual money on that statement. Number two, I wouldn't be sleeping on Miami in 2020. They're probably uniquely poised to surprise people this year because of the uncertainty elsewhere. And again, that's something we talked about Thursday night. If you want to go find that video, it is on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Next up, Andrew. How different would Georgia be perceived nationally if guys like Lawrence Kazier and DeAndre Swift were healthy for the whole season last year and the SEC championship game? Well, Andrew, obviously it would have given them an opportunity maybe to try and push the ball down the field a little bit more against LSU. Remember, they lost Don Blaylock in that game too. It was just a confluence of horrible, horrible events for Georgia 
offensively. But that's in the past. Here's the way I'd do this. I, I would spin it a different way. But you got to be careful. It doesn't, it doesn't need to sound like you're making excuses if you're George, if you're Kirby Smart. But what you want to make sure people remember is you want to make sure people remember that you were injured. And you want to publicly to your players sell that we don't make excuses around here. But privately, you also don't want people to talk about how you just got blown off the field against LSU. So what you want to do is subtly, you want to make sure people remember, well, we were gutted offensively. By the time we got to that LSU game, I mean, any chance that we had probably went out the window with those injuries. And what that does is it kind of insulates you from being criticized for being handled at the hands of LSU. And it makes people think, okay, well, next time we get there and maybe we're healthy, different story. Next question is from Twitter, by the way, at Late Kick Josh on Twitter is how you can follow me. And listen, guys, as the season gets closer, we'll only have more traction and more conversation on platforms like Twitter. A lot of you converse with me back and forth during the week using Twitter. And as you know, I make myself about as available as anyone in this business does because uh, I understand, at least, that you're the reason I'm here to begin with. So I'm happy, more than happy, to talk to you. It's kind of my job. What else am I going to do? So anyway, M1K asks, you always talk about how there's only so many wins to go around in a conference and someone has to take the L's. Well, I'd like to know your thoughts on which middle-of-the-pack SEC program could elevate themselves by leaving the conference. My example would be Auburn. All right, well, first off, Auburn I don't view as being middle-of-the-pack, but I'll entertain that. For the record, Kentucky would be my pick. Kentucky is middle-of-the-pack in the SEC. If you were to be able to perfectly package Kentucky as they are right now and drop them in, let's say, the ACC uh, suffice to say, they would be much more thought of as a national contender, as a conference contender, as a New Year's Day Bowl contender than they are in the SEC. Go back to Auburn, though, and we can draw Kentucky in here, too. The trick to answering this question, it's all hypothetical, number one, that's the trick. But number two, the trick is you can't just assume that you'd place these teams elsewhere, but you'd maintain everything about the investment and the buy-in, and basically the stuff that being in the pressure cooker of the SEC has forced them to do just to keep up. Like at Auburn, you are dealing right up the road about two, two and a half hours with the greatest dynasty in all likelihood in the history of the sport. That's your rival. Not to mention your number two rival is over in Athens knocking on the door of a national championship. Your number three rival just won a national championship. We've discussed this many times, but what does that force you to do? If you want to even stay relevant, Think about the insane amounts of buy-in and commitment you have to have. Well, that just makes Auburn relevant nationally. And you're thinking to yourself, and I understand the train of thought, okay, well, if we could take all that, but we put them in a less competitive conference, then maybe they'd shine more nationally. Yeah, if you could drop them in there and guarantee that all that stuff remains unchanged. But I think that that pressure forces a lot of what Auburn is. And I don't know that you could just manufacture that if they weren't constantly feeling that pressure. Next up, Gators are stupid. Back for a fourth straight week. I want to stress that that is not my sentiment. That is the name of the poster. And he is asking something that is certainly not derogatory towards Georgia this week. Gators are stupid asks, what do you think the season opener atmosphere between Georgia and Clemson will be like in Charlotte in 2021? Well, at this point, I'd be jacked. To be honest with you, if you took the Campbell fighting camels 
and put them on the field against my high school alma mater, Harris County High School, and we played in a sandlot somewhere, I'd be jacked at this point. Think about this answer, though. I mean, you got to tell me what 2020 holds, and no one truly knows what the answer to that is. But is a game like the one you just pointed out, Georgia versus Clemson, to open the season 2021, is that going to be the first or among the first legitimate college football games at stadium capacity that we will have seen at that point in two years? Because that is a distinct possibility. And if that's the case, imagine that opening weekend. For that matter, if we can get back to normal by next spring, imagine what spring games may be like. You could see spring sellouts all over the place. So I look forward to anything that resembles normalcy at this point. Uh, Next up, this one is non-football. How about this? Non-football question, says Trevor. What is the most frightening and most dangerous situation you've ever found yourself in while storm chasing? Those of you who have listened to this regularly know sometimes we delve into non-football related topics because I let you ask anything you want to. Within reason, of course, within reason. You can't ask about our employees' love lives. In most cases, I will not go into that. I don't know. If you ask... If you ask me about Trey Scott, someone like that. Yeah, I may trash Trey Scott on here and send him kissy face emojis in the Slack rooms. So back to Trevor's question. Non-football question, most frightening and most dangerous situation you've ever been in while storm chasing. I've done and participated in storm chasing both professionally and before that as a hobby for better part of 15 years now. March 3rd, 2019 is by a sizable margin the most dangerous situation I've ever been in. We were chasing in uh, Beauregard, Alabama. We were chasing what ended up being a killer EF4 tornado. We got about eight-tenths of a mile away from that core about to cross a highway that we were headed down. We were doing what is called core punching, which means approaching a high partici- or high precipitation supercell from the north, which is terrible because you're blinded by rain. You can't see anything. Frequent hail cores in those portions of those supercells. And uh, we knew what we had because we had all the data in the car, all the fancy equipment that I'm proud that I don't have to pay for. And so you had a debris ball with a signature well north of 25,000 feet, which is insane. That's like flying in a commercial jet and seeing two by fours at that altitude. Crazy. And uh, we had everything maxed out, gate to gate, a lot of the nerd alert, meteorological type stuff. So we knew what we had in front of us, but we couldn't see it. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a situation where you legitimately thought you were facing death or you were in a near-death sort of situation or experience. That's my time. That's when it happened. We're on a rural highway in Lee County, Alabama. This is not I-65. There's not a spot where you can just turn around you know, every few hundred yards. And we knew we had a monster on the ground in front of us. This, these tornadoes in the south do not sit still and stay pretty like they do in the Midwest. Normally in the spring, they're moving. They're moving south-southwest, north-northeast at about 50 to 60 miles an hour. This one was moving about 55 miles an hour. So anyway, I got a couple of first-time chasers with me. I do not let them know what's happening. One of them's driving. I didn't let them know what was happening. I tried to maintain calmness, which I don't have that big a problem doing, and I did. And I calmly let them know, we need to turn it around here. They just thought we were turning around because the rain and hail was too heavy. We turned around, we got out of there. It ended up crossing in front of us. We come back in behind it. Total and complete destruction. We ended up pinging ourselves on a map and charting it afterwards, a few days afterwards, 
when the fatality numbers started to come in. This was a horrible, horrible tornado. It was a high-end EF4 tornado. We had 23 fatalities within a six-tenths of a mile radius from the point that we had been at before we turned around. We probably turned around about 45 seconds to a minute and a half before uh, the front part of that tornado ended up crossing that highway in front of us. Ended up being nine-tenths of a mile wide at that point, by the way. So there there was about a 30 or 45 second period there that felt like you do as a roller coaster starts to go down the first steep drop where you, you don't have your bearings. You don't feel grounded. uh, You got that feeling in your stomach. There is an unmistakable adrenaline rush, the likes of which you could never explain, never duplicate. There is no substance you could put in your body that duplicates what you feel in that moment. Anyone who's ever been in a near-death experience knows exactly what I'm talking about. That's as close to near-death as I've ever been. And then we went into search and rescue, and it was a terrible, terrible night, and we saw a lot of horrible, horrible things. The smell of pine, fresh pine, if you've ever been in a uh, heavily wooded area after a tornado comes through, it is so thick that it clogs your nostrils. You can't breathe at first. Just like breathing in freezing cold air when you walk outside. If you live in the north or northeast, first thing in the morning, it's, it, it's hard to breathe. It's kind of the same way, except instead of cold air, it's just the smell of pine everywhere. So that was the um, most frightening and most dangerous situation I've been in while storm chasing. Next up, this guy's name, as he put it in the podcast review section, is they took all the names, 769. But he did have a good question. I know you said you aren't on the recruiting rankings council, but you listen in on their meetings. What's taken into account when they rank players? I know film and height and weight and drill time, etc., but what else is there? Well, all of the above, and I would add with nothing weighted disproportionately. I don't think that they get drunk on a kid having a 4-3-4, even though he can't catch and he can't square off an in route and you know he, he can't process a playbook to save his life, but he can run a 4-3-4, so let's put five stars next to his name. That's not how this works. And as I've told you before, no, I'm not on the rank- rankings council but I sit down on the meetings frequently just for this very reason. When someone asks me a question like you just asked, I want to be able to honestly answer it instead of just guessing my way through it. And I want to experience this for myself because see, when there was a time previous to me being in this industry, when I would talk about recruiting and I would you know, look at it along with you guys, there may have been questions in the back of my mind. Are there various biases in the room? You know, do they really do their due diligence, this, that, and the other? All those questions were answered to me. First time I ever set in on a call here, honestly. And then uh, the several times after that, it's just been validated. But here's the way it happened. There are a lot of folks on these calls. Uh, There are a lot of different viewpoints that get put on the table. Everything gets chopped up. No one's feelings are immune. And it is great to listen to. The first thing there is a major point of emphasis on is getting verified numbers. doesn't matter if a kid sends you in a Twitter DM or an email that he's 65240 or that he runs a 4440. You know, there used to be thousands of 4440s, everyone coming out of high school. Oh, I run a 44. Well, then you get them in a camp setting and you laser time them and you found out that 44 was actually a 463, which is still not terrible, but it's not 44. So that's one thing you want. Second thing is, how many eyeballs can they get on a kid? And then do their in-person observations 
sort of confirm or validate what they've seen on tape. And the other thing that you may be watching for is, are you dealing with a camp star instead of a football player? Because the camp setting sometimes is built to let certain guys shine in shorts and a t-shirt, and then you strap it up and you put pads on Friday night and they're a ghost. But they test off the charts. Um, the other question that a lot of people ask about, and this is one I'm still fascinated by, is character. Sometimes you'll get a guy who is a five-star from the neck down and from the neck up, as I like to say, there are all kinds of question marks. Uh, there was a guy, I don't feel like we need to name him, but very recently, this last class, who had five of those stars next to his name uh, for various parts of the process, but his recruitment was a wild one, to say the least. Here's what I've observed. They have to be certain of character flaws in a guy to even consider dropping him rankings-wise because of that. What I've noticed is good character can definitely warrant a little bit of a bump in the ratings, but it takes certainty over character flaws to be dropping any kids. That is my observation. That is not a statement from the rankings council themselves. So it is very thorough. It is bias-free. I know that a lot of you don't believe that. All I can do is tell you, I sit in on these meetings. I would tell you otherwise. It is, the only bias is getting it right. That's the only bias. Uh, these are the best in the world at what they do. No regrets is next up. This is a beautifully worded question. Listen to it closely and know your mascots. Should the top half of the AAC be wary of the East Carolina University Pirates coming after their booty? You see what he did there? Again, know your terminology and know your mascots. They returned the fourth most production in all of FBS, and Mike Houston's team showed promise in games against Cincinnati and SMU last year. Yes, uh, this is my answer now. Sometimes when I re-listen to this, I can't tell where the question ends and my answer begins. So, line. And now here's my answer. Yeah, I think that people should be wary of them, but I think 2021 is going to be the year to watch out for ECU. If you know anything about them last year, a lot of you don't believe I watched G5 games, but I do religiously. They played a whole bunch of young guys. Uh, the results were about as expected. You know, you talked about how they were really close and they pushed Cincinnati and SMU. Yeah, they did. And they also struggled against FCS teams. So, I mean, they got a... They got a passing game that probably could go north of 4,000 yards this year. The run game is one of my concerns. Defensive line, I think they're putting a bunch of new guys in there too. I think anything north of 500 this year would be considered a win. And then next year, you got a guy that's done it at the FCS level before as your head coach in Houston. Next year would be the year that I would circle for ECU. Next up is Nerdist23. What is your opinion of Les Miles? Did this guy just step into a winning team Saban built? His one and only national title was four years after Saban left LSU. Well, that's true. I mean, how many other guys that are active today have national titles, period? So you win one anytime. You've done something in my book. He came along to me about 10 years too early. Les Miles is a perfect example of a guy who needed to do what Ed Orgeron does, ironically, at the same program. He needed to delegate more. He needed to get out of his offense's way. Now, they were a recruiting machine under Saban, and that infrastructure Saban put together, it'd take a whole lot to screw that up. And Miles did not screw it up. He was actually a good recruiter. They had a good recruiting staff under Les Miles there, so they didn't screw up the infrastructure that Saban had put in there. 
but they just played this unnecessarily risk-averse style. Some places, most famously and most recently, places like Michigan State under Mike D'Antonio, they have to play risk-averse. They don't have a roster loaded with five stars. So that style of play works for them and has worked for them and was totally understandable. It, you know, it went sideways at the end, but it was totally understandable in their prime under D'Antonio that they played that way. That is not what you should be doing at LSU now or in the past. They were playing like pickup truck football with Ferrari players. And that's only good enough until someone better moves in next door and understands the tools that he has at his disposal. And that was Nick Saban. And they were competitive with him, but they were just that much better at LSU or at Alabama, rather. Next up is Sean. What are the odds of a college football playoff this year? And what are the odds Florida is a part of it? Well, Florida, I mean, let me see their schedule first. I'm at a disadvantage now. As I told you, this is late night, early morning Tuesday, or Wednesday, rather. And I assume we're going to get a schedule as soon as we press record or or end record, and then we send this in. We're going to get a schedule. So I'm answering this and saying, I want to see Florida's schedule beforehand, knowing full well we'll probably have Florida's schedule by the time you're listening to this. So let's just table the Florida talk. But Sean did ask, what are the odds of a college football playoff this year? If there's a season, I'm very confident there'll be a playoff, Sean. The same people deciding on the season are the ones who are ultimately going to decide on the college football playoff. So if we got a season that goes anywhere near the length that they have outlined it to go, I think we'll have a playoff. Brennan is next up. Brennan asks, what is your opinion of Kellen Mond? And what do you think of Texas A&M's quarterback position after he leaves? Kellen Mond, to me, Brendan, is good in a lot of areas. I don't see much greatness in any of those areas. So you can win with that. I don't know if you can win national championships with it, but he is good. He's not a bad quarterback in any of those areas. He's good in a lot of areas. But behind him, it's an interesting mixture there. For instance, a guy like... uh, Calzada, I think is the kid's name, Zach uh, Calzada. He got experience before they redshirted him last year. So they perfectly worked the redshirt rule for him, got him some experience, but still got the shirt on him. But then you got a couple of four stars and King and Eli Stowers is there. So Jimbo Fisher is going to have plenty to choose from there. And it could be a situation after this year where they're losing a guy who's got a ton of experience. And so you'll have the old talking points of, ooh, Jimbo Fisher in Texas A&M, question marks at quarterback, dare we say quarterback controversy, which I say sarcastically because we don't believe in quarterback controversies here. The only controversy is if, if your quarterback takes someone hostage, then you got a quarterback controversy. But depth and competition at the position, that's not controversial. That's just what we said, depth and competition. That's what those things are. And so they're going to have a few options to choose from there. And my point is, that you may be a situation a year from now where the preview magazine culture is telling you, oh, Texas A&M taking a step back because they're having to replace a quarterback. And it may be that you actually end up taking a step forward because you've had enough time to develop guys and they are just better and more talented options than who you had on campus previously in Kellen Mond. Bless him, as we said. He's not bad. He's a good quarterback, just not great. So bookmark that for a year from now. All right, uh, we were talking a second ago about the most frightening storm chasing situations, and Benji asked a very similar question, but here's what he asked. What was your most dangerous situation you've ever experienced while train hopping? 
talking about subculture with Miami earlier. This is kind of a subculture unto late kick. Um, you know, when we get deeper into these podcasts where it's just you and I, and hopefully management's not listening and law enforcement's not listening, that's okay. As we, a statue of limitations, as a couple of buddies of mine erroneously like to say, has passed on this. So I can tell you this story. Um, but the subculture here is, yeah, I've, I've hopped trains once in a while in my past. So 2006 was the year. Don't ask why I remember that. It was the first time that uh, me and a couple of dudes that I used to hang out with, we ever actually successfully hopped a freight train. Just something we always wanted to do. Um, you know, if it's cool enough for hobos, it's cool enough for us. So we are in Forts in Georgia, just north of Columbus. There is a rock quarry there, Vulcan. And uh, it's not the only place Vulcan exists, but they've got a rock quarry there, still do. And so they'd run a train every night north from Columbus. It's only like 15 miles. They'd run it up there. They would take some empty hopper cars up there, and then they would drop those off and pick up full cars of ballast, which is a fancy rock quarry industry term for rocks. The same kind of rocks, ironically, that you see on the side of railroad tracks. So they'd pull them out of the quarry, and then they'd put them on the main line, and then the engines that pulled them out would have to detach and go around the train on another track to the front. And so while those engines were going from the back to the front, that's when our plan was to hop on. So there we go. It's not moving. It's easy. We just climbed a ladder and hopped on. And we've got it made, man. We got our flashlights up there, and it's three of us up there. And so we're just talking, same volume I'm talking to you right now with, and we're not even thinking about the fact that there's a guy that had to switch that track back to Maine on the back of this train that's going to walk from the back of that train to the front of the train. And so we're up there talking. Ten minutes has gone by. We're getting ready to move, or so we thought. And all of a sudden, we see flashlight. And this is bad, bad, bad. It's bad news bears. And sure enough, the guy that was walking from the back to the front hears the uh, rookie freight hoppers. Could be their first trip. And he hears the voice. And he shines the light up there. Now, we laid with our backs on those rocks, and we're just staring up at the sky, and all we can see are stars and then a future of us in front of a judge the next day. And then that guy kept walking, and he never climbed up there. I don't blame him because he couldn't know that it was uh, three punk kids up there, and for all he knew, it was guys with a shiv, and he didn't really feel like he was paid enough to check it out. So he goes to the front. We end up moving. All's well that ends well, right? Absolutely not. We get into town, we knew where these trains stopped, uh, so we would park a truck where we knew we were going to hop off, and then we would take another truck and take it to our hop point. And we stop exactly where we thought we would, and we climb down exactly how we thought we would, but then what we didn't plan on was about 15 cars up from us, there he stands, and he's waiting on us to get off. And then he starts coming for us, and so we hightailed it, and we had to slide down this long grass hill behind an Italian restaurant that won't be mentioned here for several obvious reasons. And we peeled it out of there. And it was the first time that I found out the truck that I had at the time, 94 GMC Sierra could actually lay rubber in a parking lot. And we got out of there. And that was about as close to being arrested as I ever wanted to be. And so that was our last trip aboard the ballast night train from Forts in Georgia to Columbus, Georgia. It sounds like a Tina Turner song almost. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, Owen's got a really good question here. It's one of those old-fashioned, if we took this team out of the SEC, who would we replace them with? And I got some candidates here that I think we could throw in the Southeastern Conference tomorrow. And not only would the conference go on, not skip a beat, I think it actually may even improve it, I say. So stay with us. We'll be right back. And we're back. And hey, since you sat through that ad break, 
Why don't I just take seven or eight more seconds and remind you, five-star reviews. Please give them to us. We love them. They're worth their weight in gold. Management loves them. It makes us look great. It gives us more leeway. That's probably about 10 seconds. But point being, five-star reviews, please and thank you. As I said before that ad break, Owen asks, if Missouri left the SEC tomorrow, who would replace them? Now, let me stress, this is a question. He's the one who thought of Missouri, not me. So if you want to criticize Owen, send it to his email, which I'm not going to give you here, rhetorical. So Owen asked about it. Pretend we have a gap. Let's not even single out Missouri. We just have 13 teams. Someone's floated off into space, and we got to fill this spot with a 14th team. Clemson, that's who I'd go after and make no bones about it. And you would get all this back that's, oh, you can't take Clemson. They're a founding member of the ACC. Yeah, I can. Yeah, do you remember, maybe you don't, do you remember last time that this conference expansion free-for-all was upon us? And do you remember how quickly all kinds of tradition and marriages between programs and conferences just totally flew out the window? And it seemed like every morning you woke up and every morning with a new headline, tradition seemed to matter less and less as opposed to what the value of a new conference affiliation would bring you? There's a price. Every team, every program's got a price. Clemson's no different. So I'd go after Clemson. They would greatly bolster the competition levels in the SEC East, both short and long term. They fit. They have the identity and the trademarks of an SEC program, uh, the DNA of an SEC program. Death Valley fits right in with Athens and Knoxville and Gainesville and the like. And if that didn't work, I'd go to Virginia Tech for reasons. And if that didn't work, I'd go a little bit different route. And I'd go to Central Florida. As much, again, as you folks down in Orlando and around the country, people who have just taken up the Knights' cause seem to think that I hate you. Not at all. Watch pretty much every game you play. I just don't appreciate the concept that you are on equal footing with major Power 5 teams come playoff selection time. And this is not the time for that conversation. I've already made my thoughts known, and you've made your counterpoints known. However, let's make it all irrelevant, and let me take you and put you in the SEC. I would get further down into Florida. I would get into the Orlando and South Florida media markets, which uh, in some ways I'm in, but in another way I'm not really in yet. And I've always viewed Central Florida as a program and university kind of has a lot to do with this, with extreme upside. I don't think their ceiling has even uh, been broached. I don't think that they've even come close to hitting their ceiling. Then imagine what happens if I pump SEC television money and conference money into the equation down there. Central Florida could be a monster. Central Florida could be the next generation's Florida State. You, you don't know what I'm talking about and you're 25 years old, go ask your dad if he's a lifelong college football fan what Florida State was like when he was a kid. Ask your grandpa what Florida State was when he was a kid. He probably would say, who? Never never heard of him. But then all of a sudden, you'd heard of him. Well, Central Florida could be the next generation's Florida State. Next up, I go to a Big 12 school, and I think Matt Campbell gets a lot more credit than he deserves. That's Iowa State's head coach. He had a nine-win season with Hakeem Butler and David Montgomery, but the next year, he was outcoached in several Big 12 games and the bowl game against Notre Dame. I think he's a fine coach, but not winning the Big 12 anytime soon. What are your thoughts? All right, let me unpack this. So first, you mentioned that, yeah, he had nine wins, but he had Butler and Montgomery. Well, no coach ever has a good season without good players. 
Now, on the other side of that coin, plenty of coaches have had bad seasons despite having good players. So let's think about that for a second. I don't criticize a guy for doing good with good players. That's what good coaches are supposed to do. The second part, and this is a little bit deeper and more nuanced, but I hear this all the time. Guys got outcoached. Oh, this guy got outcoached. How do people know when someone gets outcoached? What does it really mean? Like, what, what, do, what do we mean here? Do we mean that the other teams were more prepared consistently? Did you get out-schemed? Did you forget football in the offseason before the season that you got outcoached, allegedly? How do people spot that? And let me go down the list, by the way. I went to the trouble of looking this up, which is not a lot of trouble. Iowa State last year, they lost to Iowa, a ranked Iowa team, top 20 Iowa team, 18 to 17. They lost at Baylor 23 to 21. That Baylor team ended up playing for a conference championship game and having a head coach taken by the NFL. They lost to Oklahoma State 34-27. I mean, that's nothing to shake your head at. Uh, they had a eh, what you would call a bad loss at Kansas State to end the year. They lost by 10. But competitive in every one of these games. Uh, most of these rosters, aside from Kansas State, are better at that point last year than Iowa State's is. And then they lost. Uh, they got thoroughly outplayed, I will agree with you, by Notre Dame. Notre Dame in the bowl game. The point is, think about the history of college football. Notre Dame should outplay Iowa State 10 times out of 10. They should. And, and so you wrap this up by saying, well, I don't think they're going to win the Big 12 anytime soon. Who is saying anything to the contrary? Let's take Iowa State fans out of the equation. They're passionate about the program. I'm high on Iowa State. I love Iowa State. I'm high on Matt Campbell. I haven't predicted them to win the Big 12 anytime soon. I haven't seen anybody out there reputable or otherwise, to be honest with you, predicting them to win the Big 12. What they're saying is Matt Campbell and that program are playing above their skis right now as it relates to what history would say. The best indicator of that is the fact that a lot of people, the question right here and the person who asked the question here included, a lot of people right now are actually mildly criticizing Iowa State for going seven and six. Seven and six. And we looked this up the other day. I think the last time before Campbell got there, that they had had an eight-win season or better. I think it was like 2000, 2001, sometime like that. This is not normal there. And all of a sudden, he's elevated the profile of the program to where seven wins, that's it? Yeah, yeah, seven wins, that's it. They were competitive in every game, except Notre Dame. That's not a bad season at Iowa State. Next up is Scott. Scott asks, how do FCS programs like South Dakota State break through the glass ceiling and become a national contender in football. Well, Scott, now I'll admit I had to look this up, but I'd say they already are. They've been to the FCS playoffs seven years in a row. Uh, they've been to the semifinals back-to-back -back years. Just because they haven't won a national championship doesn't mean they're not a national contender. How about this stat, by the way? Since 1972, South Dakota State has had four head coaches. That consistency. Next up, Corbin asks... Who will Ohio State have in the backfield this year, and how much does the loss of J.K. Dobbins hurt their ground game? Well, it, it does not help it. You know, a lot of times, and this is independent of Ohio State, just a general observation, a lot of times what sort of aggravates me and just sort of entertains me about college football fandom is fans will tout a player to the ends of the earth when they're on their roster. But as soon as they leave, they will also tout how there won't be a drop-off and how we will seamlessly replace this guy. Now, I have not necessarily heard Ohio State fans say that in mass. Just a general observation there. 
I ran the J.K. Dobbins fan club. J.K. Dobbins, I could not have thought any higher of him. Incredible, versatile talent. Trey Sermon was a huge pickup for them. Trey Sermon, for those unfamiliar, transferred from Oklahoma. It feels like four years ago, but it actually happened this offseason. So he gives you a veteran presence behind a veteran offensive line. Master Teague, really kind of the reason that Sermon's pickup was so big because you lost Teague to an Achilles injury in the spring. And he's going to play this year. To what level will he play remains to be seen. But having Fields at quarterback, having those weapons everywhere else, and just overall having the caliber program they have, if you had question marks, I guess you would say running back being a question mark there. I tend to think they'll be fine. Sermon, I think, will pleasantly surprise some people with how versatile he is. I don't necessarily know that he's as explosive as Dobbins was, but he, he's a guy that fully capable of being a feature back for you and being a three-down back for you. He could do everything out of the backfield you need him to do. Also, Corbin asked another question. What does Tennessee's offense look like this year? Is Maurer the clear starter at quarterback, and how will the Vols replace the production of Jennings and Callaway at receiver? Uh, let me get into camp a little bit to answer the, the wide receiver question. But as for quarterback, absolutely not on Maurer. In fact, I wouldn't lean towards him as the starter right now. I'd lean towards Jarrett Garantano again as the starter with maybe the potential for there to be one or, on the other side of the coin, several guys taking meaningful reps there this year. You've got Maurer and JT Stroud. Both of those guys started games last year. And then Harrison Bailey's the guy that most Tennessee fans think of as having the highest ceiling, but he's a true freshman without spring. Kaysom Hill's almost forgotten, but he's a guy on the roster that talked to some people at Tennessee. They think he may be the guy that would get backup reps and, and get looked at heavily right now if they had to play a game today just because of the experience factor that he has too. But I'll tell you that two of the most important names in the SEC East this year Ty Chandler and Eric Gray. Those are the one-two in any combination of running backs at Tennessee. That's the style Jeremy Pruitt's looking to play. He knows he doesn't have Joe Burrow in any of these quarterbacks right now. He doesn't have Joe Burrow or Tuatonga Vailoa. They know how they have to play up there. Uh, they think they finally have the offensive line to play the way they want to play, and I would second that um, notion. But Ty Chandler, Eric Gray, those are two guys that have to get it done at tailback this year. Not just one of them. They got to have both of them. AJ is next up. Recently, during an interview between Bud Elliott and Roddy Jones, they discussed or questioned whether more lower-end Power 5 schools like Vanderbilt or Oregon State should consider going flex-bone triple option like Paul Johnson did at Georgia Tech. Do you believe this would be a good option for schools that may find themselves at the bottom of other Power 5 conference standings almost on a yearly basis? Short answer is yes. I fully agree with that. I'd be on board with it. What aggravated me about Georgia Tech is I didn't think they fit that description. Georgia Tech is not a program that I ever thought needed to go that route. They did. I guess my best case study is watching Jeff Collins. We're now in a post-Paul Johnson era at Georgia Tech. You watch what Jeff Collins does. I fully believe, I'd buy a lot of stock right now in Georgia Tech football. I think Jeff Collins is going to help the nation to ultimately realize what Georgia Tech has always been capable of. Just because they haven't done it in this life doesn't mean they're not capable of it. And Jeff Collins, I think, will show that. And they don't have to be running the triple option to do it. Now, you mentioned Vanderbilt. Perfect candidate. Oregon State. Perfect candidate. I don't think the fans in Corvallis are necessarily on board with that. But 
perfect candidate there. Yeah, and I, I listened to the interview that Bud did with Roddy Jones. It was a really good conversation. If you haven't seen that, it is part of our Social Distance series on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, available right now. Wesley is next up. Wesley says, I recall that you said in one of your previous podcasts that conference expansion is on the way in the Power Five. If so, do you think Appalachian State, Appalachian State, sorry, oh, that doesn't score me any points up there. Do you think Appalachian State deserves to be one of those teams? I'm not suggesting this because of our dominance in the Sun Belt, but we've played well against Power Five competition in the past, including last season when we beat North Carolina and South Carolina on the road, and the year before when we took a top 10 Penn State team to overtime, also on the road. Keep up the solid work from Wesley. Wesley, here is the line in the sand that is unfortunate and it's not always seen by fans. If quality of team and just the overall quality of the program, if that was the premier metric in this conversation, you would have a great point and the answer would be yes. Unfortunately, these decisions are often made, understandably so, but it's still unfortunate, with brand value in mind. And here's the sad reality. Me being a perennial 8-4 and four team, closer to a major TV market, may squash your annual 10-2 and two profile in Boone, North Carolina. Now, I'm not saying that sarcastically at all. Um, if, if I got to make the decisions, they'd be made a lot more in the thread that you just mentioned. But I don't get to make the decisions. And the ones who do don't necessarily care about who you've beaten on the road. They do care about how many eyeballs you may bring. You know, what's the value proposition here? You know the, you know the fire drill. Steven, next up. I was having a conversation the other day with one of my employees about the Big 12. We discussed if it ever blew up. Is Texas uniquely positioned with a Longhorn network and a weaker but still national brand to be an independent? think it could help or hinder their attempts to rise back to the heights of yesteryear. Stephen, I'm not sure that Texas being independent would impact their program's trajectory overall. I mean, they're going to do the same things in a conference that they would do independent. I mean, that has to do with having the proper head coach, having recruiting in order, having your ducks in a row behind the scenes, having the infrastructure in place, all of those things. You're going to win in the Big 12 or out of the Big 12 if you're doing that right. However, independent of all that, if they were to, ironic that we just used that word, because if they were to go independent, I think they're tailor-made for it. Not that this is coming or anyone expects it, but hypothetical land here, yes. Think about what they have. They have, obviously, they've already shown the ability to secure a TV deal, and I think they could get a bigger one done if they need to. They have, do, or let's ask the question, do they have enough sway? Do they have enough influence? to where they would garner a similar seat at the college football playoff table, for example, that Notre Dame has right now. Jack Swarbrick's vote in the college football playoff process and matters of the sort, it matters the same as an entire conference, like the ACC or the SEC right now. Does Texas possess that? I would argue yes, they do. They could get that done. Do they need to be subsidized by a conference right now? Are they surviving off of affiliation with a conference? No. They could be independent tomorrow. They'd be just fine. Does their conference benefit them you know, from participation more than the conference benefits from having them in their conference? In other words, does Texas need the Big 12 more than the Big 12 needs Texas? I don't think so. I think the Big 12 benefits a whole lot more from having Texas than vice versa. And 
Here's another fun thing to think about. Would them having autonomy over their schedule be a plus or minus? I think it'd be a huge plus. No disrespect to Kansas, but if I were replace if I were to replace Texas going on the road to Kansas with Texas going on the road to Tennessee, yeah, I think it'd be a big deal. And I think Texas could get that done. Now, I don't think that's happening, but it is a fun thing to think about. Yeah, Texas, if if you had to pick someone who could survive tomorrow going independent, Texas would be one at the forefront of that conversation. Uh, let's move on here. I wanted to note, by the way, there were a lot of questions. Jeff and Duke and Tom in particular, I had you guys written down. You had a lot of procedural type questions about how the season's going to play out related to scheduling, related to COVID. And my answer to all those questions was going to be in some form or fashion, I don't know. And so let's save those for when we get some more definitive answers, at least have a structure of what the season's going to look like, who's going to play who, where, etc. Rob is next up. One of the greatest things about an entire season is a play or two that just defies logic. I can remember where I was when I saw LSU's Bluegrass Miracle or Jacob Hester's fourth down runs against Florida or the Auburn kick six. What would be some of your greatest miracle plays? Rob, I think you got to start with the kick six. In the past generation, I think that thing's going to go unmatched for eternity. If you consider just the improbability of the moment and the play, um, but also consider the historical ramifications, it was the Iron Bowl. It was a massive rivalry, and those teams weren't 7-5 and five either. Bama had won the national championship two years before that. They had won the national championship the year before that. They were playing to go to the SEC title game and try to win a third straight national championship. Not only does Auburn cost them that, Auburn goes on to win the SEC title. Auburn almost won the national championship. That was in Malzahn's first year. So, I goodness gracious. I mean, you got a guy like Vern Lundquist who's called games since Moses was a small kid. And he has been on record several times as saying, yeah, that's about as good as I ever saw it. That's my favorite moment. So that speaks volumes to me. But I'll also tell you a couple of other ones. Michigan State returning that, that fumbled punt attempt for a game-winning touchdown, no time left in 2015. I remember where I was. You just said you remember where you were in those moments. I remember where I was. I was on the road every week in those years at a college football game somewhere. I don't talk about that as if it were a chore. I love doing it. But that was a week I was off. And I was in my apartment in Columbus. And I was walking from kitchen to living room. The moment was just Michigan needed to get off a punt and they were going to win the game. So I'm just assuming the game's over. And they fumbled that punt and Michigan State ran it back. And I stood still in in disbelief, staring at my TV for so long that, you know, if you stand on carpet for a long time and then you move, you can see the footprints in the carpet. My footprints were in the carpet by the time I moved. That's how entranced I was on this moment. I had chill bumps, actually. I remember vividly looking at my arm. My mouth was hanging open like some of those Michigan fans they showed on TV. Shame on them for that, by the way. It's entertaining, though. But that was crazy. And another one, you know, I was on the field for the Josh Dobbs Hail Mary to Juwan Jennings when Tennessee beat Georgia in Athens. You had two lead changes in the final 20-some-odd seconds of that game. And a celebration penalty pushes Tennessee out near midfield. They get a chance to throw one to the end zone. So that one was crazy, too. Ended up walking into Tennessee's locker room. And they let me in there because I had an orange polo on that was the same color as Tennessee's orange. So that was a fun day. I've told that story on the podcast before. Next up is Kobe. Which school, Texas or Texas A&M, would you rather coach at? If they both had openings today, which would you accept? Why? Which is the better job? 
My answer here is Texas A&M, but it's strictly personal preference because if Texas came to me tomorrow, I'd have no problem taking that one in a heartbeat. In fact, I'd have no problem answering this by saying my old go-to of you take your first choice and I'll take whatever's left over. But the reason my personal preference would be Texas A&M is just I'd be a part of the SEC culture, which I admit that I grew up in, so I have a favoritism towards that culture. But I would relish competing against the best in America. And I would have that if I were at Texas. I would compete against Lincoln Riley. But if I'm at Texas A&M, I'm competing against LSU every year. I'm against Alabama every year. I'm going up against the best of the best. And I want to do that because I want to compete against the best. I want that pressure cooker. It's not for everyone. And I'm not saying there's not pressure at Texas. Certainly there is. But there's no pressure like pressure in the SEC when you have everything you need to win. That's the plus minus. They give you everything that you need to win at A&M. Well, then you got to win. I have no problem with that. That's a fair trade-off. It's unfair when they don't give you everything you need to win, but still want you to win. But you got everything you need there. You got the competition. You got that pressure cooker. You have the facilities. You have an immaculate stadium. Unbelievable atmosphere there. So you got everything that you need. So I would personally love to take the head coaching job at Texas A&M. And hey, if it's taken, you give me Texas. I'm not going to have that big a problem with that either. All right, good stuff. A lot of good questions here. A quick reminder, five-star reviews, please and thank you. I'm not going to beat your ear off with that continuously, just five-star reviews, please and thank you. The way to get in touch with me if you want to submit a question for next week, joshpate706 at gmail.com. On Twitter, at LateKickJosh, you can find a pinned comment under every episode of Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. It'll say something along the lines of, thanks for watching, reply to this comment if you want to get a question in for the podcast. So just reply to that comment. Really, really happy to have had you with us this week. We do this every Wednesday. We also do Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Subscribe if you haven't already there. It's also free. Every Thursday night and Sunday night, 8 Eastern, 7 Central. In the month of August at some point, or early September, depending on how the schedule shakes out, we will be adding a third live show per week. That'll be Tuesday night. And same time, 8 Eastern, 7 Central. So a lot of things still moving around right now, a lot of uncertainty, but worry, we at least have our schedule here figured out. So for Tani on the production end, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks for listening to the Late Kick Extra podcast. God bless. Have a great rest of your week.